Hello, Ryan here. Me and Pete aren't in this week, so here's an out-of-office episode which we recorded earlier. History happened everywhere. Out of office. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Out of office... My name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the bucket to my spade. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I am very well, Peter. I am currently sunning myself on a beach somewhere. Oh, that sounds great. I hope I'm there too. (laughs) (laughs) For this out-of-office episode, Peter, the Dursalator has given us fatherhood in Algeria during the Paleozoic. (laughs) So, Peter, this is your episode. Tell us. What have you got in store for us? What do we have in store? We have shifting continents, evolving creatures, death on a colossal and global scale, climate change, volcanoes, the first tentative steps of life out of the oceans and onto dry land. Welcome to the Paleozoic, and welcome to a tiny bit of land squished in the middle of it all that would eventually become Algeria. welcome to a very special guest. Given we have the topic of fatherhood today, Mm -hmm. we've been joined by one of my favourite fatherhood bloggers, in fact, literally the only fatherhood blogger I know, (laughs) the star of bewilderdad.com, it's Mr. Jim Coulson. Welcome. I'm glad I come above the Paleozoic on the billing. That's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very modern dad, but we will be looking for your views on how single-cell creatures might go about their fatherly duties. Hey, it's the role I was born to play, so. (laughs) Well, shall we begin? Let's do it, Peter. Right, well, we've actually been to Algeria before, which is our country. This was in episode 21, which is Nature in Algeria, 1940 to 1950. That was a while ago, so let's have a little refresh of the memory. Okay. Uh, It's the People's Democratic Republic of Algeria, which is a country in North Africa in what's known as the Maghreb, which is a strip across the top north and northwest of Africa, Mm -hmm. with Mauritania, Morocco to the west, and uh, Libya to the east, stops just short of Egypt. All that sort of northern Africa area is the Maghreb, and a big chunk of it is Algeria. It's kind of due south of France and the eastern half of Spain, so straight below those two. So it's about a quarter to a fifth of the North African coastline, which doesn't sound massive, but then it projects down and expands out into a huge area in the Sahara Desert. Okay. Uh, And in fact, it is the largest nation in Africa. It's the 10th largest in the world, in fact. Which is astonishing, isn't it? Because it doesn't raise its head very often on the global scale that that its size implies. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got a lot of space, but a lot of that is Sahara Desert, so I guess they're not building too much on it at the moment, I think. Uh, Maybe in the future sometime things might change. In fact, as we know from the previous episode, once upon a time, that wasn't desert at all. It was lush land. So who knows what'll happen in the future? Robots. (laughs) (laughs) Sweeping herds of robots. Well, it's 2.3 million square kilometres, 920,000 square miles, 4.3 Frances to an Algeria. It's much bigger than France. So you could give it four Frances in an Algeria. That's amazing, isn't it? That's huge. Yeah, it's uh, if you paste it over the top of Europe, it's a good chunk of Europe. Huh. Flag-wise, green and white vertical halves with a red crescent and star in the middle, yep. uh, giving you the hint that it may be an Islamic nation, which it is. And let's have a little listen to the national anthem, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. It's very martial. Beat Marshall. Yeah. And you want to be cheery when you head into battle. 
just nice, it's a nice holiday vibe to it, I think. It is, you could imagine walking down the prom, across <gasps> that coastline, listening yeah. to this. Down the boardwalk. All wearing those stripy blazers that they wore <laughs> in the olden days. A straw boater. Oh yeah, with big moustaches, perfect. <laughs> well, so let me tell you a little, bit, a little bit about this. This was written by Mufti Zakaria, who was Mufti. an Algerian nationalist. And this was when Algeria was a French colony. He was being held in Barbarous prison for being an Algerian nationalist, when he was frowned upon by the French. Mm. Uh, and in prison, he had no pen or paper. He wrote the words, not the tune. Uh, he had no pen or paper. So allegedly, Zakaria wrote the lyrics of the national anthem in his own blood on the walls of the jail cell. Oh my gosh, writing it in, in your own blood. I mean, that is commitment to the tune, right? But it's called Casaman, or The Oath. That's an auspicious beginning, though, isn't it, to a national anthem? Yeah, it's uh, it's a solid story to have behind your national anthem. I mm. can't help but suspect I personally would have just tried to remember it. Yeah, you've got to be not very confident in your memory abilities. You must be a bit tired, and just, I'm going to have to go for the second option, which is the blood, and just see how it goes. <laughs> Come on, we're going to move cells. Oh, no, really? Uh, <laughs> can I take this wall with me? <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, that is the anthem, and a jolly good one it is too, I feel. Yeah, I like that one. Upbeat. So now, Algeria has a long history. It starts, unsurprisingly, with early man, but we did cover it in the last Algeria episode, episode 21. We did. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but broadly speaking, early man arrives, he drew on some cave walls, the Sahara became more deserty than it was to start with, some civilization starts up, the Phoenician Empire, the Roman Empire, the Umayyad Islamic Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the French em Empire, and independence. Nevertheless, I will give you a couple of famous Algerians to top it off. It gets complicated with these French colonies because these are people you would more commonly think of as French, but they were born in Algeria. Albert Camus. I'm guessing a footballer. He is, in fact, a writer. <laughs> but he was a goalkeeper. In fact, I'm going <laughs> to... No, he was. Oh, really? <laughs> Genuinely true. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely true. Famous so, goalkeepers you don't expect. Pope John Paul II and Albert Camus. Right. Thank you. I didn't expect either of those. No. You are exactly right. <laughs> that's why Jim is here. Adding value already. This has been a great investment. Thanks, I only know famous ex-goalkeepers. That's oh, all. That's, okay, that's right. my area of expertise. <laughs> well, this the fashion icon who may or may not have been a goalkeeper. We're about to find out. Yves Saint Laurent? Goalkeeper or no? <laughs> so, um, more midfield general, I think. <laughs> but that is Algeria. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. So, you know how we've been to Algeria before? You know, for one of our episodes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was episode 21, I think. Yeah, that's the one. Well, I was listening back to it the other day, and we sounded really different. Different? How's that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess it was like early days, but we just sounded fresher and younger. Really? Is it really that different? Yeah. Listen to this. History happens everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir. I'm here in the HHG studio with the butter to my toast, Mr. Peter Goddard. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Do you want to talk about Algeria? Yes, I would like that. Okay. I don't think we sound any different today. No, I suppose not. Okay, so now you know where you are, North Africa, the Maghreb. But let's think about when we are. This was 
quite key to why this was in some ways challenging as an episode to do a specific country because the Paleozoic era was a very long time ago. <laughs> to give you some clues, paleo means older or ancient. So you know you're going back a bit. Now, the word paleo is the old and it's um, there's actually two geological, historical, archaeological, whatever you want to call it, time periods that have paleo in the name. Okay. It's easy to get them confused. So there is the Paleolithic, oh, right. which is old, is the paleo, but the lithic is stone. So that's the old stone age so you're talking about 11,000 to 3.3 million years ago this is where early man was around using napped stone tools so the paleolithic old Mm. stone is when first men were appearing and chipping things into tools basically sure that's not us but that's kind of what you first what i was first thinking of and very nearly did a lot of unnecessary research (laughs) on (laughs) but that we're talking about the paleozoic so paleo is old still but the zoic is relating to animals so zoo zoic oh okay basically this is the oldest time there were animals right that's how far we're going back so paleolithic is men using tools this is first animals appear basically so which one is the paleo diet based on the paleo diet is what would men have eaten in early man days when they Uh, didn't have tesco's yeah i guess single-celled organisms for your lunch dinner (laughs) breakfast (laughs) is not going to be very attractive i I mean it will make you thinner it's an algae heavy diet i think (laughs) i'm sure gwyneth paltrow's tried to pitch that (laughs) (laughs) yes uh, that'll be 400 pounds for a kilo of moss (laughs) cake moss But the other difference is Paleozoic is a period, I think, which is much shorter duration than an era, which is what we're talking about. So the Paleolithic is one of the larger units of geological time, which is an era. And there are depending on how you measure it, there are sort of four of these, starting with Precambrian time, everything from the Big Bang, so the start, to five hundred and forty-two million years ago. Okay, so they're literally from the start of everything to there's an Earth. There is and... an Earth, and vast majority of the time there's no life on it. It's a rock of various compositions. And at the end, the very end of the Precambrian, you might see some single-celled organisms. You might see a little bit of a jellyfish coming up, but right. that's your lot. Okay. Uh, and I think originally they thought there were no animals at all, but these new ones are slightly more recent discoveries, so they're creeping into the pre-Paleozoic first animal old animal period so that's the precambrian yeah that's your beginning then it's us the paleozoic this is known sometimes as the age of trilobites cockroachy looking fellas that you see the classic classic fossil i would call them yeah jim trilobite or trilobite <sighs> trilobite why not i mean i've made that decision on the hoof but, right. but i mean talking about fatherhood when mm-hmm. my kids ask me a question i don't know i'll just go with one and sound confident <laughs> and they'll believe it it worked on me to be honest Perfect. with you <laughs> trilobite <laughs> I'm going with it. Maybe it's because he supported me. Trilobite it is. It's official. All right. <laughs> so this is 542 million to 250 million years ago. So okay. normally we struggle to keep within the decade. I've got uh, 280 million years to play with here, which uh, <laughs> meant I could find a couple of things to talk about, but yeah. not many personal stories, funnily enough. Things are livening up on Earth with an explosion of life, starting with the smaller creatures, trilobites and ammonites. Uh, and you start to see animals, right? Start, creatures start to pop out of the water. And we'll talk about more about the Paleozoic after this introduction to the eras. Okay. So that brings us to the Mesozoic era, 250 million years ago, also known as the Age of Dinosaurs. So we are pre-dinosaur, but then the dinosaurs show up, romp around the place, munching on each other and generally uh, doing Jurassic Park type things. I'm going to anger some, some scientists and say that that's the best time. Wait a minute.
<laughs> yeah. Right. Well, the, the, you'll recognise even the periods within the Mesozoic, which are the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. Those right. are classic dinosaur periods, right? So, uh, the end of the Mesozoic, what's that in the sky? Ooh, it's a big meteor and it's coming this way. Oh, no, boom. Ah, everyone's dead. Oh, no, that's a shame. Hmm. And then we're into the Cenozoic. The Cenozoic is the age of mammals. So, we've had the age of trilobites, we've had the age of dinosaurs, now we're into the age of mammals. The little hairy guys take the wheel of the world, rather. They spread all over the world. Some of them evolve into early man. So, they that can appear in uh, quality podcasts. Mm. And um, some of those actually evolve into podcasters like ourselves. And because the Cenozoic is the last of the eras and we are in it right now, that's the era we are in The today. Cenozoic. The Cenozoic. How yeah. come I didn't know that then? How come I don't know what age or era I'm in? Where, Where am I? <laughs> I mean, it's not on the masthead of most newspapers, is it? Cenozoic quaternary period. Cenozoic Times would be a great newspaper though, right? Cenozoic Times. <laughs> that's great. All the latest since the last mass extinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there you go those are the four eras and we are basically the first era where anything interesting is happening it's where it all begins like fatherhood don't worry i'll be crowbarring fatherhood in later <laughs> it's very kind that you tried <laughs> Right, Algeria in the Paleozoic. Okay. First off, it's important to realise that obviously Algeria as a country didn't exist in the Paleozoic. But you also need to know that Africa as a continent didn't exist <laughs> in the Paleozoic. Wait, really? There was an entirely different shaped world, basically, back in this day. There was a landmass available to tourists about 550 million years ago called Gondwana. A supercontinent is known as, I okay. think there's... Gondwana. Gondwana. I bet that means something like fatherland or something. Oh, well, I should have checked that, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> Get handy in, wouldn't it? <laughs> The name Gondwana is derived from a tribe in India, Gonds, and Wana meaning land of. Gondwana land is superficially divided into a western half, Africa and South America, and an eastern half, India, Sri Lanka, Madagascar, Antarctica, and Australia. Together this forms the Gondwana land supercontinent. Thank you. So when you imagine Gondwana, imagine basically shoving the continents as you know them around the globe until you smush them all together like a very primitive jigsaw puzzle. Okay. So the kind of east coast of Gondwana is North and South America smushed together. Uh, then it runs down into Antarctica smushed onto the bottom of that and then it curls around into Australia and the uh, and Antarctica. The north of North America, Russia and China are smushed on the top. Then Africa is to the right or to the east, very middle of this continent. And to the right of that, to the east of that, is the uh, Arabian Peninsula. All of it just smushed into one big landmass called Gondwana. But there's a really good drawing I found that actually has the countries as we know them mm. marked on an image of the Gondwana map. Oh, that's useful. So basically, Africa is inland. Algeria is consequently the northernmost tip of a, an inland strip in the middle of Gondwana. It has some coast because what is now the Mediterranean Sea is a big lake. But the other half of it is attached to the bottom of Spain. Wow. So basically, there isn't an Algeria as we know it, unsurprisingly. There isn't even an Africa. There is just Gondwana. So we could say yeah. <laughs> that the father of Algeria in the Paleozoic was Gondwana. Yeah. Now, eventually Gondwana splits into a new supercontinent called Pangaea that you may have heard of, and that then also breaks into the continents and land masses we recognise today. So all this land is in one part of the Earth, right? Yes. 
the rest of the earth is just all water, isn't it? I think there is some land, islands and things. I don't think it's 100% water, but yeah, basically. All the continents were together in yeah. one lump on one, one side of the planet. That makes me wonder why. Like, why is all the land just in that one area? Well, arguably, it's sort of an inevitability because there is also a school of thought that suggests that the continents will keep going until they create another supercontinent. So they'll all crash into each other again awesome. in about 200 million years and create one of those, a few theories, but there's Pangaea Proxima, Amazia, Novo Pangaea, or Aurica, a various speculated supercontinents in our future. Quite good for us in the UK because uh, if we can't get a flight, we could drive quite to, yeah. on holiday to some exciting places. So. Yeah, it renders the channel entirely pointless Does bring it on <laughs> i say i too too believe in returning to europe but i don't want to wait 200 million years to do it hey if it's worth doing it's worth waiting for <laughs> so there we have it algeria there is no algeria but uh we could pick it out on a map and it is inland in the middle yeah it's not like underwater or anything is it it's, no it's right no, there was... and things are on it yes and that was helpful for us as you're about to find out in the next bit after this Okay, so let's talk about the Paleozoic. Why don't, why don't you talk about it? Because <laughs> I've got very little to add. Jim, I'm in much, Jim. Um. So the Paleozoic covers a huge amount of time. It's 289 million years. It's time in which Earth's life changes dramatically. Earth itself changes dramatically. I said Gondwana was land, but actually through this era, yeah. this is when everything's moving around. So even our Algeria is on the move throughout our period. It's uh, sufficiently long for an entire continent to drift across the, the Earth a little bit. And so I'm going to give you a quick whistle-stop tour of the periods that make up the era. Okay. So the Paleozoic starts with the Cambrian period. Cambrian period is very important. It's named after Cambria, the Latin name for Wales. It's known for an explosion of life on Earth. You may have heard of the Cambrian explosion. Mm, I have. It's an important topic and discovery, I suppose, for the science of evolution. It's a period where you see suddenly loads of different life forms in the fossil beds. There was some debate about whether there really was a Cambrian explosion or whether conditions were just really good for... Uh, sorry? Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's serious though, isn't it? Jim, do you want to handle this one? <laughs> do some fathering. Okay. Uh, yes, that's nice. <laughs> no, I mean like aliens, like comets and stuff, rocks from space that had bacteria or whatever on it. That Was it called something spermia? No. <laughs> is it so panspermia? Is this panspermia, a, that's the word. Thank you. A genuine theory or a genuine thing that happened? Or? No, this is it. Well, we don't know for fact, but yeah, there is a theory that life on Earth, well, life all over the universe is all merged around by comets and things that explode. I mean, I feel like I'm making this all up. <laughs> I don't know what's true and what's not and anymore. They've, they've called this panspermia. Yes. And they did that because they thought people who say this are going to sound a bit crazy. Let's make them sound even just a little bit more crazy. <laughs> Creepy at the yeah. same time. A little bit weird. Like you wouldn't want to really hang out with them too much. That is one version. There is a version of life on Earth where they actually in a lab experimented and found if you struck lightning in a primordial soup of some kind you could actually generate amino acids which is kind of the building blocks mm. of proteins and the sort of the origin of life so there's one that's the theory that lightning may have actually started it all off as 
as well. That's an exciting laboratory to work in, where you're shooting lightning bolts at primordial soup. What do you do for a living? Well, <laughs> play God. <laughs> so anyway, we start with the Cambrian period, the Cambrian explosion, loads of arthropods, so the ancestors of sort of insecty, crustacean-y creatures, and chordates, animals with spinal cords, start to emerge. So that's the Cambrian explosion. Then there's the Ordovician period. This sees life really broaden out. It's called the Ordovician radiation. So the explosion of life in the Cambrian then just, I guess, travels around the waters of the Earth. The trilobite is really the organism to be at this period. They last for out 270 million years as a creature, which is pretty good going, I'd say. Wait, 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 wait. Not individually. No, no. As a species, as a species right? right? You can okay. find trilobites that cover 270 million years of the fossil record. Not there's one called John, who's <laughs> right, basically okay. the end going, oh, I've seen it all. Well, no, you say that, but there are some, like, some squids, right? Some jellyfish can live forever. <laughs> Why do I feel like a mass crazy You're person? To crazy cast <laughs> with Ryan Weir. <laughs> so to recap, aliens seeded life on Earth and squids live forever. <laughs> oh, Ryan, I didn't realise that you'd done this episode. You'd researched this <laughs> meticulously. <laughs> there are, there is some that that are. Oh, just move on. Naked mole rats don't age. That might be what you're thinking of. No, but there's others. Jellyfish and stuff don't age. Or they do, but then as they die, they then come back to life. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a whole mythology building up around Ryan here. Are you thinking of the ghosts in (laughs) Pac-Man? Oh, no, wait. (laughs) Yeah, no, now you mention it. (laughs) Okay, so we had Cambrian explosion, Ordovician radiation as everything spreads out. Then the Silurian period, which sees coral. Coral is the big thing in the Silurian period. Hold um, that thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. There is, to date, there is only one species that has been called biologically immortal. The jellyfish, Turatopsis dormil, small transparent animals that hang out in oceans around the world and can turn back time by reverting to an earlier stage of their life cycle. Uh-huh. So who's crazy now? Maybe there was a trilobite that lived for 270 million years. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we shall get him on the next, uh, on the verdict. <laughs> if it was a dad trilobite, it might have just felt like it was 270 million years old because <laughs> I hadn't had any sleep for a long time. That's how I feel. <laughs> uh, right. So Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian. Coral is your big life form. But also this is the period where life creeps onto land you start seeing the first evidence of vascular plants on the coastal lowlands. So prior to this, the sea's where it's at. Everyone needs water, so you stay in the sea, you don't want to get out. It's hot and dangerous out there. Mm. But now, starting to see a bit of plantage creeping up on the coast. So Algeria, of course, is going to be pretty quiet at the moment because it's still inland, right, and Gondwana. But nevertheless, stuff starting to move inland. And then we have the Devonian, also known sometimes as the Age of Fishes. Yeah. This sees the beginning of four-legged amphibians and the beginning of vertebrate colonising the land. So stuff's creeping onto land now through the Devonian. Uh, then we're on to the Carboniferous, which is an answer to the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because long before the chicken was even a glint in Charles Darwin's eye, the first eggs were being laid in the Carboniferous period by tetrapods, four-legged vertebrates, things with spines. So this is an important development in evolution world because previously your eggs would dry out basically. So there were eggs before, it's not the invention of the egg, but you had to have them in water, otherwise they'd dry out and desiccate and die. So these are eggs that have an amniotic sac so they can retain the moisture and have nutrients in them. So now suddenly you don't have to have your babies via eggs through the 
sea, you can have them on land somewhere, and that means you can start colonizing further inland. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, that's how you became a father, wasn't it? An egg of some kind? I'm not a parent myself. I don't know how it works. <laughs> I, th- I think so. That's what the stork told me when it came <laughs> <around>. <laughs> I have a question. Absolutely, go ahead. In the period where it was like single-celled organisms, right? Yes. Was there decomposition? Was stuff like dying and then not getting like eaten up by bacteria and stuff? So there is... Did did (laughs) Did stuff decompose? Well, there is... Decomposition is a really important question, though, funnily enough, that you've raised, because the arrival of plants on land at first, things weren't decomposing because the funguses hadn't evolved to decompose them on land. So there was a period where nothing would decompose, and then finally the fungus arrived on land, and that helped soil and the sort of cycle of life and nitrogen and into the soil and all of that kind of thing. But in the single-cell world, I'm afraid I have no answers for you. Jim, you're a dad. Do you want to make something up? No, there was no decomposition. It was just a really good... When the decomposition composers arrived mm. they just had a lot to do because there was a lot of stuff that hadn't decomposed so they really had a great time you're so wise there you have it yeah. thanks dad <laughs> you're really useful to have around man it's fine. <laughs> i can talk rubbish all day <laughs> right so now the final period of our age so we had the cambrian the ordovician the silurian the devonian the carboniferous and finally the permian the warm seas are teeming with life now. Coral reefs are flourishing. There's fish, shelled oh. creatures, crabby things running around. On the land, you've got conifers and ginkgo trees, proper trees coming in. Mm. You've got animals on the land. They don't look exactly like the animals we know, but there's animals as we might understand them. So you're looking at a scene that's almost familiar in a way, albeit a little bit different and a little bit shifted. It seems like a really good time to wipe everything out. <laughs> And the Permian ends 250 million years ago (laughs) with the Permian-Triassic extinction event. Wow. Okay. 90 to 96% of life on Earth completely destroyed. So, I mean, literal just start from scratch pretty much start from scratch so there's some debate no one's quite sure exactly how it happened or what the deal was so you know the one that happened at the end of the dinosaurs there was a meteor that came down north of mexico and they're pretty confident of that they're less confident i think of the permian extinction reasons but one of the main theories is a bunch of volcanoes in siberia called the siberian traps mm-hmm. all exploded and they chunked out a huge quantity of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere okay raised the temperature which reduces the oxygen carrying capacity of the sea so nothing in the sea can breathe anymore so they all die and then the the food chain being what it is basically everything dies everything gets too hot there's not enough oxygen and basically everything bar four to ten percent of the creatures die yeah if it's volcanoes then you've also got like ash in the air as well right for potentially thousands of years so this is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere causing climate change Ah. see that happened the summer that uh, mary shelley wrote frankenstein is that there was a massive... Extinction of all life. (laughs) Well, not quite the same. (laughs) But there was, uh, I can't remember the name of the volcano, but it exploded and it covered, uh, ash went everywhere. And it's called the summer where there was no summer or whatever. Mm. Ah. And that's why they were not out enjoying the uh, lakes of Switzerland when they were out there. They were inside because it was horrible and rainy and dark and horrible. Oh, wow. And they wrote their stories and she wrote Frankenstein. She came up with that. And uh, it was just a, a terrible summer. People's crops failed. There was poverty and starvation all over the world i wonder what inspired such a gothic horror yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the summer that uh, inspired where's wally was it, it, was, it was, <laughs> that was a different summer so there you have it that is the story of the paleozoic era so i'll just give you one more time cambrian ordovician silurian devonian carboniferous and permian boom everybody dies <laughs> Now, looking at those periods, you will, with your colossal general knowledge, have noticed a pattern. They all end in Ian. 
that is one of the patterns, but that is not what I'm looking for. So the Cambrian is named after Cambria, the Latin word for Wales. The Ordovician is named after an ancient Celtic tribe, the Ordoviches. The Silurian is named after a Welsh tribe, the Silures. The Devonian is named after Devon in southwest of England. The Carboniferous is called that because the rocks from that area created a load of rich coal seams in England. And the Permian is named after the region of Perm in Russia. So barring the Permian, everything has a very British twang to it, does it not? It does. This is starting to sound like the story of most history now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, this is millions of years ago. This yeah. is this is millions of years ago. But the, there is a reason why all of these periods are named after things British. And uh, I'm going to introduce you to a gentleman called Adam Sedgwick. I'd love it if he just walked in right now. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> that would be a trick because Adam Sedgwick was a geologist, a British geologist, and an Anglican priest. He is arguably one of the founders of modern geology. And he was born in 1785. Ah. So if he was going to walk in, he would be animatronic at best. <laughs> he was born in Dent in Yorkshire. Oh. I believe you're a Yorkshire fellow. I am. I have no idea where that is. Ah, <laughs> well, you'll have to go seek it out. There's Denton near where I live. But well, maybe it's that. Take a road trip for us. I will do. So he was born in 1785, like I say, in Yorkshire, but he goes off to university at Cambridge, where he studies mathematics and theology. So in 1818, he was elected to be the Woodwardian Lecturer, which is later a professorship, in geology. And this is surprising for two reasons. First is, in order to hold the post, the rules of the Woodwardian Lectureship was that the holder has to be celibate. The What's founder, that got to do with it? The founder of the post stipulates this uh, because, A, the post holder has to give four lectures a year. Wow. And then he has to be celibate, quote, lest the care of a wife and children should take the lecturer too much from the study and the care of the lecturer. Wow, it's borderline religion, isn't it? So, Jim, you're a father. Do you think you could squeeze four lectures a year in despite your uh, <laughs> progeny? Well, maybe this is why I'm not lecturing. I'm not big on the lecture circuit because of those kids. <laughs> I'll tell when I get home, I'm going to berate them for that. See, you could have been celibate and been a, a foundational geologist. In practice, I think it actually meant he meant to be, had to be an ordained minister. But uh, nevertheless, he was, the founder was quite specific about mm. celibacy, which is quite the move. Also, I wonder how long those lectures actually were, because it could be like, you know, proper 12-hour lectures you've got to talk about it's probably not an hour is it i don't no. think you could just sort of casually extemporize here's a rock looks gray <laughs> <laughs> but the second reason that i was slightly surprised that our man sedgwick was elected to the woodwardian lecturer in geology mm -hmm. was that he had never done any geology of any kind <laughs> <laughs> he had precisely zero experience and no training in geology when he got this position he had one rival for the position a guy called george cornelius uh, he did know about geology and about him sedgwick said i had but one rival and he had not the slightest chance against me for i knew absolutely nothing of geology whereas he knew a good deal but it was all wrong <laughs> <laughs> he's a yorkshireman as well and yorkshire folk are well known for just thinking that they're right about everything uh, so actually this does fit with history so i can skip a stone yeah <laughs> So yes, he gets this lectureship. I guess he, he realises he perhaps brought a gen up a little bit on the, the, the facts of geology. In fact, he says, I have never turned a stone. Henceforth, I will leave no stone unturned. Oh. Is that where the phrase comes from? Uh, no, I think he was using the phrase, but... Uh, okay. I, I have never turned a stone. Seems like a weak entrance to that, to be honest with you. But uh, he's as good as his word. He becomes very good at geology, as it happens. Uh, a talented person, as all people from Yorkshire are, I, I hear. Well, I hear he also had a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> 
Welcome back to Who Wants To Be Rich? Adam Sedgwick here has a cheque for £500,000, but we don't want to give you that because we're playing The Million Pound Question. Adam, for a million pounds, the question is, pegmatite is a type of what? Is it A, a tree, B, an amphibian, C, a musical instrument, or D, a rock? Oh, my heck, that's a tough one. Um, I'll have to use me 50-50. Really? Okay, well, let's take away two of the incorrect answers. And we're left with a musical instrument or a rock. Oh, blimey, I thought it was going to be one of the others. Um, can I phone a friend? Okay, uh, who do you want to call? Can I call George Cornelius? Okay, and now do you know George? Oh, he was the fella I beat for the geology job. Let's call him up. Hello? Now then, George, it's Adam. Adam Sedgwick. You know, the, the one who got the job. Uh, what do you want? What's a pegmatite? Is it a musical instrument or a rock? Uh, why are you calling me? Look, I've only got ten seconds and it's worth a million pounds. Oh, I see. Well, as you know, I've studied geology for many years, unlike yourself, so I can tell you quite categorically that it is a musical instrument. <laughs> oh, that's champion. When I've won, there's a hundred grand coming your way. Wait, what? No, no, wait, wait. So this was a time, you have to bear in mind, geology was a very young science. It barely existed, frankly. And it heavily was influenced by the Bible. So they were looking, when mm. they looked at the ground, for evidence of the flood from the book and evidence of things that happened in the Bible. So it becomes increasingly obvious over his career as he learns more and more about geology. He starts out, and his biblical geology is about looking for evidence of floods, basically, and these sort of biblical disasters. But he's a true scientist because he, over time, he starts out being a biblical guy, but he, he thinks, do you know what? This doesn't. This doesn't fit. This doesn't work. And eventually, he just changes his mind. The evidence is such that he goes, Do "You know what? This this just doesn't fit." And uh, in 1831, he has a presidential address to the Geological Society. And he recants all of his biblical beliefs and says, this is wrong, it just doesn't work. He says, having once been myself a believer and to the best of my power a propagator of what I now regard as philosophic heresy, I think it right as one of my last acts before I quit this chair, thus publicly to read my recantation. So I find this really admirable. It's, you'd spend years and years and years thinking one thing to actually realise, you know, what, I've been wrong all this time and then stand up and say it. I believe it was in a cathedral when he did it as well. And I think there was a dinner afterwards where nobody came because he, he really made himself super unpopular with this. But I just think that's a testament to good science. So well done, Mr. Sedgwick. Yeah, well done, Mr. Sedgwick. This is not his first entanglement, if you will, with science and religion coming up against each other because one of his students in geology was uh, Mr. Charles Darwin. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Jim? <laughs> Do you want a, a Yorkshire Charles Darwin fact? Please do. When he wrote the uh, his big book, he uh, hid in Ilkley, which is near where I live in Yorkshire, because he was worried that religious people would be really cross with him, and they were. Um, but he hid, <laughs> so... He hid? Yeah, he just, well, he came away, and at that time, Ilkley society was a little bit smaller. I see. And so he, he said he was going to take the spa waters, but uh, he didn't. He just, just went hid. there, hid away. 
Wow. Is it as nice today as it was in Darwin's time? Yeah, it's even better. There's a Betty's now, which what? is a lovely little tea room. So there you go. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he, conti- he continues to do geology uh, in a much more scientific way. And he conducts fieldwork in Scotland, in the Lake District, Northern England and North Wales, uh, often with a collaborator, a friend called Sir Roderick Impey Murchison. The name to conjure with, isn't it? Mm. Uh, my favourite uh, fact about Sir Roderick Impey Murchison is that it was described by one website as he had given up fox hunting in order to study geology. Well, you've got to give up something. I, how much time was this guy spending fox hunting? <laughs> I guess it's like the having children thing. That suddenly, it's a wise, really, a wise man once told me, you can't, you can't get what you want without sacrifice. And you know what? He was willing to give up the tearing apart of wild animals. To start tearing apart start. wild rocks. <laughs> yes, exactly. I can imagine there's a fox in the bush going, geology is really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Just leaving interesting rocks (laughs) on the path for him to find. So in 1835, the two men, Murchison and Sedgwick, present a joint paper under the title On the Silurian and Cambrian Systems, where they name and discover, explain the Silurian and Cambrian Systems. They establish the Devonian period. Murchison himself established the Permian. Unfortunately, the two of them had a bit of a row and they had a falling out, so they stopped working together eventually. But so as a result, I've got to pick a side, right? Uh, so I'm going to say, it seems to me that Adam Sedgwick of Yorkshire, he was the one who coined the term Paleozoic. Yeah. So I am going to declare him the title Father of the Paleozoic. I think that's admirable that you made that choice. Uh, it must have been very difficult. You must have been between a rock and a hard place. Jim, do something. <laughs> um... What? <laughs> well, this is awkward, isn't it? Okay, so what can we find in Algeria in the Paleozoic? This was the challenge. Oh, yeah. I have <laughs> forgotten about Algeria. <laughs> scuttled sideways into Yorkshire there because it was a great story and I thought it was worth sharing. So I can give you a review of the fossil record of fossils that have been found in Algeria in the Paleozoic or from the Paleozoic. Okay. There are five of them. Really? Just five? <laughs> five of them. as Eurites dolliaris, which is a fast-moving carnivore. Oh. Sounds pretty exciting, doesn't yeah. it? It's exciting until you realise that it's an ammonoid cephalopod. So an ammonoid is a type of mollusk. Okay. So now think snails and clams. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cephalopod literally means foot head. Cephalo is head, pod is foot, which means they have a foot that emanates from the head. So octopuses, cuttlefishes, head straight into the leg kind of thing. So, but closer to what we would call, uh, we know as a nautilus today, the shell with a kind of leg sticking out of it a little bit. Okay. So basically this is the fossil, that, the other fossil. So the trilobite is the cockroachy looking thing that's the classic fossil. This is the other classic fossil kind of like a spiral snail shell oh i see those everywhere everywhere right so that's the classic so that's the first of the paleozoic fossils from algeria then there's eurites permutes which is an ammonoid cephalopod with a fossil that looks kind of like a spiral shell the third one is Mwensteroceras multitudum. Now that is an ammonoid cephalopod with a fossil that looks like a kind of a spiral shell. Interesting. Nice. Now the Heliocyclus inornatus, uh, that is a, a, it's an ammonoid cephalopod actually. Right. And it's got a fossil that looks kind of like a spiral shell. A spiral shell, Yeah, yeah. 
spiral this time. Mm. It is, yeah, yeah. So, and the, the last one is the Cusina falsifera, which, and this, this is going to surprise you, right. yeah. <laughs> it's an ammonoid cephalopod that has a kind of spiral shell. Wow. So I, I couldn't tell the difference between any of them. Well, <laughs> you see, you might think that being the keeper of the Paleozoic uh, fossils in Algeria would be an easy job because there's only five to look after. But when you're trying to explain which one's which to the visitors... Yeah, that's true. If you dropped... If you drop the labels, oh, no. you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> this is the plot to the new Mr. Bean, isn't it? That's <laughs> but actually, I almost went. I almost brought you a real rabbit hole of ammonite study because, to me, these things all looked absolutely identical. But then I found out that there's an absolute huge amount of science in looking at the width of the shell, the bulges on the shell, the number of whorls on the shell, uh. the spiral, the direction of the spiral, the bulging of the spiral from in cross section. The shape of the shell chambers. Basically, people who are into ammonites mm. are, re- are looking at those five and going, well, you must be mad to think they look the same. But none of that tells us anything about fatherhood. So, true. I got in touch with Dave at PaleoCast. Hello, and welcome back to PaleoCast. I'm Liz Martin-Silverstone. And I'm Dave Marshall. Hey, Dave. PaleoCast is a paleontology podcast. Uh, it's paleocast.com, I believe. Uh, and he turned me on to a particular episode of their podcast, which is episode 11, Sexual Selection in the Fossil Record. Ooh. Well, this sounds like it's gone a bit late night for my liking. <laughs> I wasn't warned about this. Well, buckle up, guys. This is, uh, this is where they talk to a guy called Rob Nell at the Queen Mary University of London. He's a biologist who normally works with beetles, but took an interest in fossils. Now, I'm going to take you through what I learned from a small amount of what I learned from that podcast. If you're interested in the next five minutes of this show, do check out the full episode of PaleoCast. It's very interesting. And it will be an opportunity for you to hear the words sexual ornaments and animal weaponry. <laughs> if that doesn't uh, make you want to hear more, I don't know what will. Mm. So let's talk about sex, shall we? Sex time. Let's talk about the sexy times. Sex. This next segment is called Who's the Daddy? How do you know who's the father in any given relationship? You've got the same eyes. So if you've got ammonite eyes, then uh, <laughs> then you can tell you're the father of a fossil. Ah, okay, right. So one of the big challenges about talking about fatherhood in particular in the Paleozoic is actually identifying who is mum and who is dad even. So oh, wow. you can't tell which of these fossils is male or female normally. Or can you? So the challenge comes in a couple of ways in the fossil record. And the first is that there's not a lot of fossils. So normally when you look at animals, you look at a lot of them and go, oh, look, all of the men are brown and all of the women are green. Therefore, the sexual dimorphism, it's called, the ways you look different based on your sex, suggests that men are brown, females are green. Fossils, you only have one or two fossils and suddenly you don't have that sort of comparison. So that's your first problem is even having enough samples to understand which one is which. The second is when there is strong sexual dimorphism, so there is a big difference between the male and the female, it's very, very easy to find a fossil and just think it's a different species because it looks really different. So you take this creature and you go, oh, look, this is a massive beaked creature and this is a tiny beaked creature. They're different creatures, but actually it's the male and female of the same species. So this actually happened with the moa in New Zealand. Moa is a big emu-ish attack bird, (laughs) I would describe it as. When they first found fossils of this, it was recently extinct it's not paleozoic but the they found the fossils and they thought they, they'd assigned them different species and then dna testing came along and went whoa 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 this is just a boy and a girl they just happen to look super different hmm. so that's that's your problem of finding out and identifying sex in the fossil record but this is where we get to the paleozoic 
If you look at the fossil of one particular trilobite, which seems appropriate, it's the age of trilobites, you can find something interesting. The Wallacerops trifurcatus is a type of trilobite. It's a fossil that's been found in the rocks of Morocco, which is just next door to, to Algeria. So I think it's a, a fair to say that they will also have strayed over the border. They had passports. <laughs> so this guy has had all the normal cockroachy oval shape that we know from the fossils. It's got all the little legs all around, as you expect. But what's weird about him is on his forehead, basically, is this fork basically imagine a three-pronged fork and it's massive it's got basically a trident on its head that's about the length of its own body wow um, it's a weird little thing it looks that's, looks really funny that's hard is it a hard fork? Well, it's a fossil so <laughs> <laughs> right but it would have been made of shell or something it's it? highly likely that it would have been hard because it's been preserved so yeah, generally okay. the soft parts of these things don't get preserved right. uh, although there is an ammonite that has been found that the soft parts managed to somehow be fossilized no which is way that's Incredible. taught them a lot about the internal structure of an ammonite. Yeah, that was the rabbit hole that I went down. Huh, that's great. <laughs> but yeah, so this creature is carrying around basically his own body weight in ridiculous fork. Uh, and that seems weird. But Rob Nell, being a biologist who works with beetles, has gone, hang on, that looks familiar. Because he works with beetles. He often sees they have these huge antler-like structures. Yeah. He's gone, hold up, I think I know what that is. So he looks at the fossil and goes, I think that is evidence of sexual selection in ancient fossils. So what do we mean by sexual selection? The question is, why would this thing evolve with a giant fork on its head if it's not going to help it survive, basically? So we are all familiar, I think, with evolution mechanism of natural selection. So if you live longer or if you have a, a, a mutation or an adaptation that makes you stronger or faster or more poisonous or in some way better fit to survive, that trait will tend to pass down and that's how things evolve. We, we all comfortable with that as a concept? Yes, sir. So you're getting faster, that makes sense. You're more camouflaged, that makes sense. But some things seem to have evolved that seem to be the opposite of helpful. Let's take peacocks for an example, right? Peacocks have a gigantic great tail. That tail doesn't help them fly. It makes it very difficult to fly, actually. It doesn't help them evade predators. In fact, <laughs> apparently, tigers have been known to sneak up on peacocks and put their foot on the tail. <laughs> <laughs> and then when the peacock tries to escape, no can do. <laughs> I mean, was this in a cartoon? It sounds like <laughs> Wile E. Coyote. It really does. This is, this is all what I got from Paleocast, so do check it out. It is very interesting. But uh, So the question is, how does what is effectively a survival inhibitor, this thing that doesn't help you at all, it's making you more vulnerable, get passed down from generation? You would think that would be wiped out in no time. So the, the theory is sexual selection. So it's not just whether you survive or not that matters, it's whether you reproduce, you mate, you find a partner who is willing to have the sex with you. Again, Jim, you've achieved this. Well done. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> so the reproduction counts. It's not just living. It's living and passing your genes on by mating with a partner. So some of these traits are believed to have evolved through sexual selection because they aren't directly useful for survival, but they do appeal to females. In the case of a male-dominated, it can go the other way, but it's often females. And therefore, the, the appeal to females means that they reproduce and therefore it gets passed on and it passed on. So basically, women like a big tail. So even though I'm more likely to get eaten by a tiger, my big tail means I'm also more likely to hook up with a nice lady and make lots of baby peacocks. So the question sort of behind that is why on earth would a female prefer something that clearly is going to make your babies have a harder time surviving? And the probably the best theory at the moment for that is that the tail is um, what is called the handicap principle, right? So the, the tail of your peacock or the huge, huge antlers of your beetle or deer or in this case trilobite are an, an advert in a way for your general fitness. So what you're saying is I am such a fit peacock. I'm so strong and fast and generally 
internally sound and uh, the, the whole package that I can afford to carry this great big tail around. I can cripple myself and still... Because I can, I'm so great in all the other ways, I can carry this great big thing around. It's a sort of secondary indicator of your general fitness that means, you know, if you had a heart condition, you probably couldn't hump a big tail around. So all of the things that you might not be able to see are kind of secondarily evidenced by your ability to survive whilst carting around a great big ridiculous uh, billboard on your backside. So if you were looking to find a partner, maybe what would be a good idea is to walk down the high street with a couple of dumbbells. Like just pumping iron, going, look, I can do this. I'm so fit, I can walk down to the supermarket with my dumbbells. I think that, but I think you see a a more actually real example of that because I can afford to buy this absurd sports car Ah. (laughs) is equally uh, an indicator that I am fit to be a partner of because I can afford to blow my money on this ridiculous toy and therefore, hey, come and get it, ladies. It strikes me as being antler-like. Antlers are often used to sort of maintain your territory or to fight other rivals. Yes, and that is another aspect of sexual selection, though, because it's it's other rivals, it's other rival males, right? It's not about defending yourself against predators, it's about fighting other males. So it's still an expenditure of effort to display your general wellness, if you like. Or it's for a trailer fight. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Trailer fight. Yeah, no, I, I got it. Anyway, Pete, what this have you got? <laughs> so to bring it back to our fossil... This giant fork sticking out of Wallisterop's Trifurcatus's head could well indicate that it is a male. So what does fatherhood in the Paleozoic look like in this male? It's a big fork, that's what we understand. But I also asked Dave to, to help me understand fatherhood, right? That's who's the father. And Dave came back with this. I fully expect that being a father in the Paleozoic was centred around just spraying a load of sperm in the direction of a female laying eggs. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it. A paleontologist speaks. (laughs) That is fatherhood in Morocco, which is nearly Algeria, in the Paleozoic. Well, well done. I I was wondering how you were going to get close to it. (laughs) But that was uh, a roller coaster ride towards it. (laughs) It really was. Well, look, Peter, an extraordinary out-of-office episode. Thank you very much. That, um, yeah, I think you have succeeded marvellously in uh, talking about both Algeria, uh, the time, the Paleozoic, and also fatherhood, bringing Jim along. I'd like to thank you, Jim, for your time, effort, wisdom, and wit. Well, I'm glad to offer at least one or two of those at some points. Probably not all together, though. <laughs> Uh, Jim, anything, any final comments from you? Anything that you'd like to promote? Uh, just go to bewilderdad.com and look at some of the videos and stuff and give them a little like and then subscribe. That's cool. We'll put a link into the episode description for this episode. And if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us uh, through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com or to bewilderdad at jim at bewilderdad.com. We would love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to one of those, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our little one-minute animated bites. We'll be back again soon with the verdict, but until then, a huge thanks to Jim. Thank you. It's been absolutely an honour being on this, and I genuinely, genuinely mean that. (laughs) I love this podcast. It's like I'm inside it. It's weird. (laughs) 
And a huge thanks to you, Peter. Thank you, Ryan. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Out of office... Hey, Jim. Hey, Pete. You're the bewildered dad, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with it? You know, when they're sulking and crying and complaining all the time and there's tantrums and screaming. You know, they just won't do what they're told and they're being a real handful and, you know, showing you up in public and stuff. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, you're not alone. It's just really quite typical, but hopefully they'll grow out of it eventually. You just have to be supportive but strict. You've got to set those boundaries and don't let them push it. Okay, right. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Thanks, mate. No, oh, no problem, no problem, because, you know, kids can be really tough. Kids? Hey, I want an ice cream. You haven't finished your dinner. It's not fair. I hate you. Anyway, thanks, Jim. By the way, do you do babysitting? No, no, I don't. I think I pooped myself. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope.